0: Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 6 is where we will be this morning as we go along with the second of our Advent messages. God who at sundry times in divers' manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, Whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, his essence, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high being made much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, He saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. What if God said nothing? What if God kept to himself and refused to reveal anything concerning himself? What if he chose to just leave us in darkness? You know, he would still be a righteous God. Because whatever he reveals to us, we do not deserve. I suppose a good number of people over time, for them it would not make much difference. Since they have conjured up and designed their own God. Yet we would have to ask in light of that, what is it about man that throughout his whole history of existence, He has always had a god or gods. Oftentimes, it is natural occurrences that caused the development of their systems, caused them to think of something other than themselves being in charge. This natural world has a lot to reveal about its creator. The fact is that because of this natural world that God has created, there is this thing that's called natural law. I heard one poorly informed radical leftist in a conversation a couple of weeks back said there is no such thing as natural law because it is a creation of white colonialism. To which the person he was speaking to replied, go into the lake, submerge yourself and breathe. On second thought he said, go to the lake, jump in the lake and not get wet. On third thought he said, just go jump in the lake. R. Scott Clark said of those who don't believe in natural law that they are insane. And so we have insane people in high places in our country. As we come to this first chapter of Hebrews, we are confronted happily with the idea that God does reveal He has in the past, and he continues into today. In the beginning, in the early part, the means he used was the prophets. In the present, it is by his son, the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. It's a great thing that we understand that in these last days he has spoken to us through his son. That means when it comes to communicating his truth, he saved the best for the last. It's an interesting thing when we think about Christ as the word. In many places in the Old Testament, because the Old Testament does testify to Christ continuously, God is always spoken of as being with someone in Genesis. Let us make man in our image. Psalm 110 The Lord said to my Lord, in Proverbs 8 about wisdom. Wisdom said, the Lord possessed me. And of course, wisdom being spoken of as Christ here, the Lord possessed me from eternity. And of course, as we just said, the word was with God. This Christ, as Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews tells us, as the apostle Paul tells us here, this Christ who is the brightness of his glory The express image of his person, that is the exact imprint as the ESV has it. The one who is upholding all things by the word of his power. The one whom when he had purged our sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. it is quite common during this time of year that people get to questioning, what did humanity do to Christ? And they question, what does it mean that he emptied himself? And some of that is good to ask, but I think sometimes we need to flip it. When we read something that he is now at the right hand of power in his humanity as well as his deity. Then we must look at the, what, not what humanity did to Jesus, but what Jesus did to humanity. Because he has brought humanity into the throne of God. And too often we ask the question backwards, where we should see, look at what he did for humanity and in humanity to show us what we could have been in so many ways. We could never be divine, for sure. But we had an opportunity at one time to be sinless, and it was lost. Now each and every one of these phrases concerning the glory of Christ, the power, the excellence deserves our attention. They've been given here not only to pique our adoration, but also to clear up a point of confusion. Jesus was not an angel. And you think, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, if you go read Colossians 2 and verse 18, Paul tells us that there were people who worshipped angels. That we're not to do that. And so therefore, it is a problem that existed at that time. And even amongst the Hebrew believers, they had come from a time where some of that was still being worshipped. And so therefore, it is clear that we set Christ above the angels because, first off, the angels are created beings. And Christ was not. Jesus was not an angel in the beginning of verse 4. He has a greater inheritance because he has a more excellent name. And then we come to the question at verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say? Which of the angels did he ever say? At any time, thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. What follows then, what we have just read, is in the book of Hebrews. Now, the book of Hebrews, remember, Hebrews. Here's the first reference, Old Testament reference, in the book of Hebrews. And what is it? It is to Psalm 2, which makes it clear Psalm 2 may have had some little application to David or Solomon at the time, but its greater application was to Christ. Yes, we have a Bible in two Testaments, Old Testament and New Testament, but it's one Bible. The Old Testament, surprisingly enough to a lot of people, the Old Testament was never written to be alone. It may seem to people like it was written by itself to be alone, but it can't be alone. Because it needs the New Testament desperately in order for its truth to come forth. So much is said in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed. But in the New Testament, the Old Testament is revealed. There is this connection. They come together. One can't exist without the other. The New Testament really can't exist without the Old Testament. Because there are hundreds of references in the New Testament to the Old Testament. If the Old Testament didn't exist... Even right here where we've come to this point where the writer of Hebrews here is referring to an Old Testament. If the Old Testament didn't exist, you'd be scratching your head saying, what's he talking about? And in this reference to Psalm 2 cover both the incarnation and the resurrection of Christ. His humiliation and his exaltation. Which is why when we have a song such as Joy to the World, I think I've brought it up before, but Joy to the World was never written to be about the coming, first coming of Christ. It was written to be about the second coming of Christ. But because there's so many parallels in the first and second coming and so much that is revealed in the first and second coming, it can go both ways. And when we read Psalm 2, we find that in verse 5, we're talking about the incarnation. When we get to verse 6, we're talking about the exaltation. Great things happen and are revealed in both comings. And yet it seems clear that the self-answering section of the first sentence is speaking about the incarnation, to which of the angels did God ever say, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Now it's clear with this statement, we understand that angels are servants. They are created. They are not sons. They are not begotten. So that question Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Of course, the answer is this. None of the angels can make that claim. <clears throat> and since this is pointing to Christ, it also points and puts to the side David and Solomon because it's pointing to a greater fulfillment in Christ. <clears throat> Jesus in his, his virgin birth was begotten by God the Father. I can't remember which or what of the ancients wrote, Jesus got his humanity from Mary, but it was he that gave life to that humanity. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 35, we read the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. And as we read in Hebrews 1 in verse 5, he says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. It seems to only make sense that this is pointing to his humanity, of Christ in his humanity. It wouldn't make sense of him, of this being said of Christ in his deity because that's already been established. I wouldn't say to my son, who is about to be 33, I think, I wouldn't say to him, oh, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. He's already there. He's already been around. And so, therefore, we look at this and we say, well, okay, it cannot be talking about the eternal sonship of Christ. It has to be in reference to the incarnation. Because you have that tense, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. It doesn't look back to before time was. It speaks of an event in history. There wouldn't be any need for the first person of the Trinity to assure the second that he would be a father unto him. This is the father owning and accepting him that the world would try to destroy. This was God's promise concerning the Messiah, David's son, that promise to David that was made a thousand years before he, Jesus, appeared on earth. I will be to him as a father. I will look upon him and I will be pleased in him. As we pointed out last week, Christ in his humanity was the first time that God in over 7,000 years could look down on mankind and say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Because there was not one person. Not Moses, not Abraham, not David. Not one of them that God could say, in all honesty, I am well pleased. I am well pleased with him and he will carry on his life and work as my son and speak of me as father. Now we go to further proof of what's going on verse 6 and again when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world he saith and let all the angels of god worship him let all the angels of god worship him now that's that's from psalm 97 in verse 7 in the greek old testament the septuagint we read worship him all ye angels so far then away from being his were the angels that they were called to worship him which meant that Christ was equal with the Father because the Father has already said my glory I will give to no one so therefore if he's saying worship the Son guess what he's saying that's me when you worship him you worship me he who receives me receives the Father And he who does not receive me does not receive the Father who sent me. But notice the title. Who is it that they were to worship? It is the firstborn. Now we, on certain months, we we, uh, recite the Nicene Creed because there's a great confusion caused by Arius at the time about whether Christ was divine or that he was a creation. And so when you have terms like the firstborn, if you don't stop and look at it in its context and how it's used throughout scripture, you can easily get confused. That's why biblicism is such a bad thing in, in so much of our churches. You think, well, that's a good term. I'm a biblicist. No, that means you're, you're, you're constantly pulling out verses from Scripture out of their context. Oh, I've got a verse for this. I've got a verse for that. No, no, everything has to be in its context for it to make sense. And so therefore, when someone pulls out a, a statement such as that, oh, he's the firstborn, you know what that means? He's born, he's created. Not necessarily. You have to put it back and follow the analogy of Scripture. What does Scripture say about this? In other places. So great caution needs to be attended to this. The Greek term prototokos. it uh, We get our word prototype from it. And the word comes up nine times in the New Testament. And eight of those times it refers to our Lord. And it is a title of enormous dignity. It's not a reference to birth order. And we can see many times that this firstborn does not have anything to do with birth order in Scripture. In Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22, God called Israel his firstborn son, or his firstborn of the earth. Not because they were the firstborn people of the earth, but because they were given a high honor from God. Out of all the people of the earth, he had chosen them. And we can look back at Psalm eighty nine, Psalm eighty nine and verse twenty six. He shall cry unto me, Thou art my Father, my God the rock of my salvation, and I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. Again, a reference to the glory, the the honor that the Son will have, even from the Father here in his humanity. The first time we see the term firstborn applied is in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 25. And also in Luke chapter 2 and verse 7, speaking of Mary, and she brought forth her firstborn son. Mary would have other sons, but Jesus would be the greatest and most highly exalted of her sons, and therefore, too, he would not be of the same parentage, the same father as Christ in his humanity would be. In Romans 8 and verse 29, Paul refers to Christ as the firstborn of many brethren. That means the exalted head and leader of those brethren. And we could go on several more verses, but here's the key. The firstborn, the idea of the firstborn in the Hebrew mind, that's the place of honor. Because it was the firstborn son that got the inheritance, He had that place of honor. So when we read firstborn concerning Jesus Christ, it's talking about his place of honor. And even here in Hebrews chapter 1, he has a greater inheritance than the angels. Now quickly, verse 6 refers to his return. Here the angels worship him. Sometimes we read things too quickly and we don't pay a whole lot of attention when we're reading. But at the nativity, at the incarnation, the angels didn't worship Christ. They didn't worship the infant. What do we hear? They say instead, glory to God in the highest. They don't say bless the baby." Praise the baby. They say glory to God in the highest. So we understand that at his first coming, the angels weren't worshiping him. But when he returns, they do. The Son of Man comes in his glory. What's the glory? Part of that glory is the angelic train that comes with him. Giving glory to him. When we turn to the book of Revelation, the uh, ascended Christ is always being glorified now this foundation is laid because of the fact of who Jesus is the Hebrews had the law and the prophets they testified of Jesus yet so many missed him who he was he came to his own but his own did not receive him and today it still happens People miss who Jesus is. Even those who, who might be assembling in certain churches around our nation and even maybe close by to us will say, Oh, Jesus is wonderful. Well, tell me why he's wonderful. Well, because he's wonderful. Yes, but why is he wonderful? Well, we sang it. Yeah, Okay, you sang it, but why did you sing it? Well, because it said his name is wonderful. So we. Well, why is his name wonderful? Crickets. If his name is wonderful, you have to know why it is. And you can't just run around with the little bumper sticker mentality. That one that was almost obscene, that one is God is my co pilot. Well, there's a vehicle headed for hell. Jesus is the heir of all things. The creator of all things. When was the last time you looked at anything of creation and said, Jesus made that? It's nice to see those little signs, placards on the lawns of some people's houses. Thank you, Jesus. But if the house has any wood in it, you thank Jesus for trees. If it has brick, you thank Jesus for dirt, for clay. And every single thing, every single component of that house comes from His creation. There's not anything that's part of anybody's house that wasn't part of creation people say oh we got this new compound there's the key, compound you're putting together something that already existed you're not making anything new you're just putting two things together that already existed he's the one who upholds all things catch this by the word of his power. See, it's not like Jesus has two great ropes in his hand and he's holding these things together and saying, "Oh Mars, stay there. Oh Jupiter, stay in your place." And he's holding them. What does it say to us? He's upholding all things. How? By the word of his power. And we got a taste of that when he walked and, and, and the, we were asleep in the bow of the ship and they said, sir, Jesus, don't you know that we're, we're perishing? And he said to the wind, be still. And he said to the waves, be still. He spoke and it was, how did creation come into being? Out of nothing at all, he said, let there be light. If that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what it is. out of absolutely nothing. You go back, go back to your kitchen. We've been watching these holiday baking stuff shows there. and The, the way those kitchens are just, they've got everything you could possibly imagine. All right, go tell those pe- bakers, here's what you need to do. You need to bake a cake, but we don't have any ingredients. The cupboards are bare. There's no flour, there's no eggs, no milk, nothing. Take a cake. Well, we can't make a cake out of nothing. Bingo! You got it. Why? Because you're not God. Only He can create out of nothing. We can sleep tonight knowing that the Creator is also upholding His creation. That Venus is not going to crash into the earth. At least not for three and a half billion years. <laughs> Jesus the bright. Brightness and express image of the father. When he himself purged our sins. Which is why he came. To save that which was lost. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty. This. This. Ruling and reigning Creator took on flesh. We sing, of the Father's love begotten the year before the world began to be. Now, of course, in all this that we're seeing and reading here, there's so many strings to tie together and there's not time to do it all. So we close with this. We began by asking the question, what would it be like? Where would we be if God chose not to reveal not to communicate anything concerning himself. Well, then our greatest need would go unfulfilled and we would have the opposite. But we have just the opposite. That is a God who reveals himself moment by moment to generation after generation. And I ask, do we truly rejoice in this? We sometimes walk around like, well, we were deserving of this truth. That's our truth, and and okay. So, and then sometimes people say, you know, why are you bringing this up out of the Bible? You know, we don't need to know this. If it's in there, you need to know it. There's nothing useless that God put in his word. As, as the word was being put together by the holy men that were moved by God, there's not some time where God said, well, you know, we'll just throw this in to fill some pages. Everything in here is necessary to be known. Otherwise, it wouldn't be there. God does not waste our time with trivia. Trivia even though some people say they have Bible trivia games, there's no such thing as Bible trivia. That's to say, we God, you know, some things are important, some things are not. It's all important. It wouldn't be there if it wasn't. And we ought to thank God every single day for the revelation of himself that he gave us. And here we celebrate the incarnation. We have to first see the great love and desire God has for his people and to be known by his people that he would send his son who would be able to say, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. I and the father are one. You will not get the truth of God from anybody but me because I am the truth and the way. God kept the best for the last. Certainly, prophets were a blessing, but how much more sure it is for God to speak to us through His Son. And so, don't be distracted. Some of you may want to cover your ears, because you may not like what I'm about to say. There are songs that we sing this time of year. There are great manger scenes that people put together and and try to be as dramatic as possible about these things. And they're putting these things together and you, you see in some of the songs they're mentioning. Animals, sheep, oxen, cows. And if you look at the manuscript, sometimes there's camels and there's, there may be sheep and, and other such things. There may be dogs dressed up as sheep. Because they self-identify as sheep. And so we have to allow dogs to do what they, they do want to be. People go through great effort. Well, yeah, let's get two of these and two of these and two of these. And let's sing about these animals making noise around the manger. Stop it. Stop it. That's not what we're to focus on. But that's the way we get. Does it say anything in any of the narratives? About animals being around the manger. No. It's man's addition. Well, it would make sense. It's a manger. It's a corn crib. It's a feed trough. So animals would be around. Maybe they would be. Maybe they wouldn't. But why do we have to insert those things in the word of God that don't exist? That actually take... This is what the devil delights in. Anything that takes... Your mind away from the most important thing. Anything that distracts. So in this time, when we celebrate what we celebrate, celebrate what we celebrate. And Don't be distracted. Let's stand together for prayer.